0: Hmm. Recorded
1: live.
0: Scuba Obsessed, The weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 331, is recorded live June 15th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. And if you don't like this weather, I don't know what you'll like. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well. Glad to be here.
0: And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin?
2: Aaron, I am doing most excellent. And and how how about yourself?
0: I am doing great. It's been a long week. I'm ready for it to be Thursday, and certainly appreciate the weekend coming up. But it is uh, amen. Just a beautiful weather uh, for those who aren't from Michigan. Uh, you certainly are going to wish you were here because this is just beautiful weather this time of year. I think this is the best weather. I'd like to have this weather all year round. It's it's, it's probably a touch toasty, but as they say, you don't want to complain about the heat in the summer because you'll be wishing for it in the winter. Uh, uh, humidity has started to climb up a little bit, but uh, how, how's the weather been? I don't know. Been?
2: It's, 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 been a, it's been a little warm. I mean, uh, you know, when it comes to cold, you can always put on a jacket, but it's kind of it's a little harder to get away from the heat than to get away from the cold. Uh, but hey, you know it is summertime, and you know having days in the upper 80s and low 90s and lots of humidity—that's just kind of Michigan for us here. Um, it is good diving weather, so it's been pretty nice. And that uh, with the lack of rain, it's given us some pretty decent visibility. So if you've been able to get out, you've been rewarded with uh, you know pretty good dives. So
0: excellent. Well, before we get uh jumping right on into the news, we did have a question from the chat room, so we'll we'll start off with that. We almost answered it pre-show, and I thought we'd cover it. And I think this one's directed at you, Mac. It says, "How well will a standard air tool, such as a pneumatic driver, work down about 10 or 20 feet of water?"
1: They work very well. You do might want to uh, add a oil mister in it, and at least when you bring it back up, run it, you know, with dry air. In a dry environment, and run a little bit of oil through it.
0: I'm kind of surprised, in kind of a Mythbusters esque opinion, I would have said that it shouldn't work underwater. Why? Well, I just figured that the uh, you'd have have to blow all the the water out of the tool and just resistance and everything. I thought it wouldn't work, but I guess if you're going
1: if it's already powered up and you got the air through it. You're minimizing any encroachment of water in it, especially as you're using it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I'm sure that the using of it actually does blow all the water out of it. Um, personally, I have not done it, but I've heard you know stories about people using uh, reciprocating saws and drills and things underwater that worked out pretty well for them. So.
0: Yeah, so so your advice, and, and we're talking fresh water. It would work in salt uh, water, but you'll
1: well, it'll work in salt water, but the issue there is you'll get corrosion and gummed up. Machinery a lot quicker in saltwater.
2: Now, we're not endorsing this practice and saying that it's good for the machinery. <laughs>
1: I mean, we oh, no, no. are
2: shortening the life, the, the, the life of, of your equipment down there. But, you know, that's kind of you got to pay to play. If, if But if you do need to use a reciprocating saw or something down there, it, it, it does work.
1: So. Yeah. yeah. I, I personally, uh, on diving jobs that require equipment like that, unless it's real special, I love Harbor Freight.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the cheap stuff, yeah.
1: Hey, it works what for the there? job, and as long as you put that into your bid, you're covered. And if you can clean it and use it more than once, you've got your money back.
0: If, if I mean, um, double it. Now, you, you, now we're going to go on a little sidetrack here just because I uh, can, I guess. I guess that's the reason. Uh, but as everybody knows, and if you love the show, uh, we'd appreciate for you to go and donate through Patreon. You know, any amount helps. Uh, if you go to our website, www.scoobobsessed.com, look for the Patreon links. You can donate there. But one of the shows that I am donating to is a, the, the guy must be some sort of technical engineer, like a product manufacturing engineer, and he buys all sorts of, uh, different, uh, pieces of equipment and then takes them apart. And I especially love it when he does that to Harbor Freight, and he'll discuss, yeah, you know, he'll discuss what it's made with, where they took the shortcuts, how they got it for the price. And there'll be times he says, "Buy as many of these as you can, because the motor they put in this is worth more than what they're charging for the whole tool."
1: Uh, and, and since you did mention Harbor Freight, I mean, so did I, but uh, you know, there was a, a lawsuit against them recently. And part of it is when you get their advertisements, it always says mm-hmm. it's this much money this is what it's going to cost you as opposed to this amount if you bought it someplace else. Uh-huh. You've seen those ads. Yeah. Uh, if you had responded to that and you had bought anything in the last 10 years, you could file a claim and get a rebate. Really? Yes. And I have all my receipts. <laughs> I mean, I, you know those little trailers you can buy for 300 bucks? I mean, you can't get you know slap some plywood on that little sucker, and uh, for hauling gear, especially for fort jo- for, uh, for small jobs, local, you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to do 70 miles an hour on the interstate towing that trailer. Oh yeah. Not if you're smart. But for you know how we do it, I mean, they're great for loading a kayak on. If you go buy a kayak trailer, you're talking a thousand dollars. It's crazy. So I love Harbor Freight.
2: Yeah, and those little trailer kits you're talking about, you know, they're they're not made the most sturdy, but yeah, when you look at you're only paying like a what 150 to 300 for the for the units, and it costs you this that much just for the spindles and bearing setups on them there, so, and but you can reuse that on the next one. So,
0: yeah, I just pasted a link into the chat room, and uh, this is that that guy I was talking about that I follow. Uh, and I'm, we're just going to have the have the link to the show notes because I don't know how you would describe his, his username. It, it's I think it's Arduino versus Evil, I, I guess is is what his channel is. But uh, we'll have we'll have links. But to, here's an example of just some of the the videos that he's he's put together, uh, and and we'll talk about one. One is the Harbor Freight Earthquake XT Impact Wrench, where he pulls that apart. He does a lot where he takes, uh, different tools and compares them like the Harbor Freight to the DeWalt. Uh, I'll warn you a little bit. His, uh, language can be a little salty, like somebody who's worked in manufacturing or maybe the military. Uh, and he's, he's quite prolific. He puts out about four or five videos a week, but if you're in, if you know anybody who's into any sort of engineering or industrial design, it's certainly worth it. Um, uh, I and he's taken apart KitchenAid appliances. He's taken apart, uh, I don't know if you, if you heard of this thing called the Juicero. I haven't. Oh, no. it's, uh, no, I, I've not. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of the, the new age thing that the kids on the East and West coasts are, are into. Uh, and the only reason you'd ever have one is cause you're, the place you work is, uh, paying for it. And what it is is you get this packets of, of juicy, juicy fibery stuff. And then this machine presses it and gives you a little bit of drink out of it. So, you know, four or five dollar per, uh, unit things but uh, he tears his machine apart and shows you how it works and uh, it's just interesting his take on it i i enjoy it i I used to have to i have to watch a couple videos and i've thrown some coin his way in appreciation but there's a little sidetrack but you're talking about harbor freight
1: yeah i just linked that put a bookmark on it i'll go back and look at that the only other item i advice i'd give on using any tool underwater be proficient on the surface with it first and if you're doing any kind of cutting either with a, a pneumatic chainsaw or disc cutter, you got to be darn careful when you're underwater with it. I mean, as much as on the surface, but even more so.
2: Now, let me question for you. As I haven't usable, used those, but I, I do know that the uh, air tools are designed to work, you know, at a PSI between, like, 90 and 120, because that's kind of, like, where most of your compressors operate at. Yet, if you're coming off your uh, first stage there, you're going to be coming on, you know, right about 140. So I'm guessing when these things come on, you, know, when, you when you turn turn that on switch, uh, they come on full speed. There's a <laughs> there's no uh, hesitation to them whatsoever.
1: Generally, I'm using an accumulator, and the line is pressurized to begin with. So my volume and my line to the device is done, is, is full, and I've already pre-cycled uh, it. Uh-huh. So when I'm down there, it, it's she's, when you pull the the trigger, you go.
0: Now, are you when like Kevin? You're talking about if you went off an air tank, like you took a cylinder with a with a regulator on it.
2: Correct. That's what I'm thinking there. Yeah. yeah. That, that's why I envision.
0: Yeah. Now, Mac, were you doing it from surface supplied air, like a compressor yes. line down? Okay. Yeah.
2: Well, it's just what, where I'm going with this is that if you were to use the uh, you have a cylinder with you with its own first stage, you know, and you adapt your uh, LP line, your uh, to be the uh, the feed line for the uh, for, for, for the air tool, then you've got an off. I mean, the, the pressure is a little bit higher than what you're expecting, but, you know, a screwdriver or, or a, a saw is going to use a whole lot more air volume than a diver is going to. So, you know, if you're in any kind of cold water, um, I guess you're certainly having, having a pretty good free flow out of that too, not being able to turn the thing off. So. <laughs>
0: And it's
1: possible for your tool to freeze up also because of the same reason.
0: Oh, okay. mm. yeah, if, I can do that. If
1: you're interested, I've got the plans for an underwater dredge that you run off a scuba tank, so you could do it in a small area. Everything flows behind you, but you're using your scuba tank. Oh, nice.
0: Mm. Of, of course, purely for scientific reasons.
1: Well, absolutely. It's uh, probably uh, it's on your pond in your property, and your just checking out the overburden. Hmm. Not so you no know, I'm
2: theoretically when you're using this dredge, uh, what happens to the visibility?
1: That's why you kick it if in a, if you're in a let's say you're a river perhaps, or a place where you had current, you just aim the the exhaust downstream. Okay. If you're is not then it, no, it gets cloudy really quick.
2: Is it kind of operating, you know, like a underwater pressure washer? I'm trying to envision how this thing happens. No, just
1: the opposite. It's a top uh, it's a venturi effect, just like it is from the surface, only I'm doing it underwater. I'm using the airflow through it to make a venturi, and it sucks the water through and out the exhaust.
0: Hmm.
1: All right. I can see yeah. that.
0: And, and you probably actually get, uh, in the right type of material, uh, almost a multiplier effect.
1: Yes, you do. And the, the problem, of course, is the deeper you go, the bigger the tank you need, because you're going to exhaust the air a lot quicker. And it's nice if you can um, uh, have variable pressure adjust. Because if you go deeper, you might want to boost the pressure because compensate for the depth. Yeah, uh,
0: But the, the alternative would be to, to have a uh, uh, like a uh, a water pump on the surface, then you run a hose down.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. And then pressure. again, you got and, – and if you use air, you can also use hydraulics. That's actually even better. And you can put a return line on hydraulics.
0: Oh, ah, yes. Okay.
1: But if you're cutting oh. pilings underwater, be damn careful.
0: Now, Rodney
2: in the chat was asking, uh, I presume he's talking about using the underwater, you know, using a scuba tank for, for a power supply. I got a question, what would you need to hook a tool to a regulator? Um I, mean, I think he's asking what fittings you'd need to, uh, you know, hook, hook in the scuba tank down there. Um, now I, I've seen a lot of times with, with air hoses where you can, uh, you know, hook in the, uh, the, the female end to the air hose simply with the, uh, Know a fitting which slides in the air hose and you clamp it down with a radiator clamp at 150 psi. That, that would, I think that'd be sufficient. Do you have a, a better suggestion there, Mac?
1: No, those barbs do work. Uh, again, depends on how often you're going to be using it, what kind of tension you're going to have on the ends of it. It's never bad to put a safety wire or something like that around your coupling. So if it did come apart, you don't have a whip, which might beat you to yeah. death.
2: Mm-hmm. And or at, at end, least knock you off. Comfortable, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, the key item for that kind of work is Rube Goldberg is your friend. You, you modify what you need to do it to make the job work. Huh. But, again, keep the safety in mind because you're the guy down there operating it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That gives me all sorts of ideas. Well, let's go ahead. Yeah, and, I, go ahead.
2: I know Darren's got some ideas about how, thinking about putting put together an air-powered underwater ROV here. Hmm, oh, what yeah. can we do with this?
0: Oh, certainly. Yeah. All sorts of those. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, first article up is we have Southam air cadets get scuba diving fundraiser thanks. Scuba divers have thanked air cadets for helping them raise thousands of pounds for a hospital which treats military personnel. Members of the sub action dive group based in Southern Leisure Center invited RAF air cadets into town to try dive day as a reward for their efforts in raising 600 pounds for the sub, the scrub action Fisher House Yearly charity swim event in November. The event raised 2,000 pounds for Fisher House, Royal Center for Defense Medicine, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, which has been described as a home away from home for military patients and their families. So congratulations, and hopefully they enjoyed their their excursion underwater. Uh, I'm not that's twenty. Go ahead.
1: I, I was going to say that's $2,500 in the uh, U.S., so that's not too shabby. Yeah that nope. 2,000 pounds.
0: Are, are air cadets just kind of like how we have uh, sea cadets? It's a, kind of a young person's like an ROTC almost type of program?
1: I don't know, but it would sound logical, but uh, I I really don't know on that one. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, here it says RAF Air Cadets. It's Royal Air Force Air Cadets. so It must be something like that, like a, a young group, but uh, well, congratulations. Good for them. And then we have historical dive sites are on the rise and north carolina heritage tourism spreads all through wilmington's historic areas and soon tourism will make their way underwater on friday a 220 foot civil war blockade runner condor will be dedicated as a first north carolina heritage dive site the history of the ship is amazing we did it for the history said greg stanton archaeological dives supervisor for the north carolina department of natural and cultural resources condor launched in June 1849, out of Govan, Scotland, and left Glasgow two months later to pick up military uniforms in Cork, Ireland. At this time, Rose O'Neill Greenhouse, Greenhow, a famous Confederate spy, was aboard the ship. She was returning to the United States and was concerned about being captured by the Union, according to the Underwater Archaeological Bureau site assessment. After trips to Bermuda and Nova Scotia on September 24, 1849, Condor set sail for Wilmington. On October 1st, the ship ran aground the coast of Fort Fisher, Greenhow, against warnings from the captain. Pilot demanded to be sent to shore in a small lifeboat. She drowned in the surf, carrying gold meant for the Confederacy. So she's given a full military funeral and, and buried in Oakdale Cemetery in Wilmington. According to the UAB site assessment, the site rests. 742 yards off the coast of Fort Fisher, according to Stratton. The ship was originally 220 feet long, but 218 feet remain at the dive site, which rests in 25 feet of water. Stratton said it's shallow enough for people can even snorkel the site. Scuba divers can take charters from the Carolina Beach Inlet to condor or kayak out there themselves. The site is perfect for beginner divers. It's really accessible. The site will be marked from May 1st to November November 1st with two 44-inch Buoys change of the bow and stern. The buoys will be moved on November 1st after seasonal tourism winds down. Stratton said there are three reasons for creating the site. One is to educate, to further heritage tourism, and to teach divers stewardship. We want people to care about the sites. This is a chance for divers to see how the vessels were laid out and how high-tech they were, especially Condor. Stratton said the first of many heritage dive sites planned for North Carolina, ranging from Outer Banks to South Carolina Cure Beach Mayor Emily Swearingen said the town is excited to host the first heritage dive site. The fact that we're the first to have the heritage dive site is very exciting. The town is very proud of the historic sites at Fisher Fort or Fort Fisher. The dedication will feature Wilmington, Susie, Hamilton, the North Carolina Secretary of Natural and Cultural Resources will take place at 1030 a.m. Friday at Battle Acre, 1610 Fort Fisher Boulevard, south of Cure beach
1: i love that article and the pictures of the boat ship are very nice there is one item i'd like someone to have mentioned though
0: well the, the one thing i see is that these dates seem all wrong
1: well what i'm concerned about is what happened to the gold she lost the gold that's, that's, in the surf so where's it at guys
2: that's what i'm wondering about when you're talking about something that's you know about a quarter mile offshore uh that's a reasonable search area you know, they say that she was carrying the gold. Perhaps the gold was on her person. Uh, what happened to that or, gold?
0: Or, or how about, here's here's maybe a more likely thing. Uh, they know she's got the gold. They throw her over the boat, <laughs> keep the gold for themselves, and then you've got a good story.
1: I Hey, that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> but like, the, the,
0: what I don't understand is uh, it was a 220-foot 200, Civil War blockade run, runner. But it said it launched in 1894 out of Govan, Scotland. The Civil War would have been long over with by that time.
1: Yeah, no doubt, 1865.
0: Yeah, and then after trips to Bermuda and Scotland on September 24th, 1894, set sail for Wilmington. I just think somebody fat-fingered or mis-transcribed the numbers. Uh, let me see if we can figure something out here I bet you there's another site that will have something on the condor
1: if, if that was a six instead of a nine it would be correct and that's very possible
0: yeah that, well, I know 19
1: the, you know, I 18, know there were a number
2: there were a number of ships named condor so it'd be pretty easy to uh, get you know bad you know information from one transposed onto another
1: yeah I read the condor and I kept thinking of somebody else's condor I know yeah
2: well that that condor that's in the Oh, it's up there in Saugatuck. It's built in eighteen seventies. to it's eighteen seventy two and lost nineteen oh four. So it overlaps that date, but doesn't actually have that date as part of it.
1: Yeah. Well, this is a side wheeler with mast or with uh so that's an interesting boat. It looks fast too.
0: Well, I've got the great big internet book of everything looking it up.
2: Yeah, yeah I'm looking it up as well, and I'm
0: I found a Wikipedia article but it doesn't have any details on it. Just has a list of the shipwrecks. Cape yeah, Fear I mean, Civil a, War shipwrecks. It was added to the national uh, registry of historic places. Oh, that's nineteen eighty five. That's that's let's see, Cape Fear. I think this is probably the same oh, crap, that's the same website. So yeah, maybe somebody knows, mm-hmm. but this is the certainly the dates are wrong, but uh Mac, I I think you probably got it oh.
1: right. Well if you just change the date yeah. that you do the You're search for
2: I think I'm getting something here. Okay. Dive on the Condor, a Civil War blockade runner shipwreck. Okay. This is in USA News. It's a PDF file. The site of the shipwreck of the Condor, a blockade runner, sunk in the Atlantic near Fort Fisher, North Carolina. This led to become a historic dive park. It goes to News Observer. Well, where's our article from?
1: I, f- I found the article with the, news- the original. It's called the 290 Foundation. And they transposed the nine at the six.
0: Oh, okay. Well, and we've got a second article. I didn't realize they were related, but, uh, uh, and that was they are talking about is easier to dive on the sunken Civil War shipwreck. So the very next article we had up was the same wreck. And that one's got the drawing. Did you see that one with the, uh, uh, Greg Stratton looked like he had, uh, uh drew, drew a map of it? Very nice. And I'm sorry, Mac. I... Oh, yeah,
2: that's bringing the, the article, which time
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, let's see. Do they... But they don't put the year on it. Like I said, I found the original for that. And transpose, it transpose out nine, it's a six. Okay.
0: Yeah, so 1864. I was trying to
1: send you the link. Right. I was trying to send you the link, but it's lost on my screen someplace. <laughs> that's
0: That's how it goes. Uh this next the the next article we won't read it. Well, you can get a copy in our show notes, which we'll thank Jim Billings for uh, putting up once again. Um, and this one goes a little bit in detail about some of the work that they were doing. Uh, like he says, last summer they trained 18 divers uh, to be underwater archaeologists, teaching them measure and record data about the the wreck. They said the whole point of the Heritage Dive Say is to work together, with the diving community, create a sense of stewardship. So very cool.
1: Oh, there's follow-up on the gold, too. Oh, do they say something? Uh, oh, yeah. It says, uh, Greenhouse heavy clothing and gold coin sewn into her clothing drowned her. Therefore, when I recovered her, I uh, recovered the gold. The gold. Right. I thought there it might have out there.
0: Yeah, Mac had already had his uh, his car half loaded by now.
1: Well, I thought about
0: it.
2: The thing is, so much Time has passed on this. I mean, if it, if if there was not a story as to where the gold ended ended, someone would have certainly done a lot of looking for it by now. And you know, twenty-five feet of water, yeah. And it's a big, search, it's a good size search area. We're talking about a quarter mile shore, but that's very
0: doable when it comes to looking for gold. I just remember a
1: big metal detector or even a magnetometer.
0: Yeah, uh, I just remember uh, Does of magnetometer pick up gold.
1: It's metal. Yeah, I would think so. It... Metal detector for sure.
0: But and, uh, if you remember... Uh, uh, I, I
2: don't know a lot about it, but...
0: <laughs> Skype's just got the perfect lag I for us tonight. Don't, don't, yeah, every, everything's... Uh,
2: I don't know a lot about it, but from what I from what I understand, when they're using a magnetometer, they're looking for magnetic metals. Usually there's like, you know, cannons and machinery and things. When, when you're looking for um, your gold... And I'm not sure my thermometer picks up gold or not. Maybe someone can tell us who knows more. I don't know. Well, Matt, you do a lot of this stuff. I guess I should defer to your expertise on this stuff.
1: Uh, I would. I'd be using my metal detector myself, and there are certain varieties you can use.
0: You just have to do right. a bigger coil to get down deeper. Uh, but that was that was making reminding me of uh, Doug Wilbanks talking about that when he was he does searches in the Great Lakes. You know, a hundred years we get the bottom that's changed. 15, 20 feet down there, they can have 30, 40 feet of sand build up easy.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that quite a bit with you know, looking for wrecks. Uh, you know, we go out to places where you know we have numbers on boats that haven't been built for, for a while, and you find the bottom has changed dramatically. Um, there's the uh, uh, ship right alongside the Holland Pier, the uh, Burlington, that ground back in the 1920s. Some of it was scrapped out of there, but probably not all of it. And, yeah, where it ran aground, it used to be uh, like 35 feet of water. And now it's 14 feet of water. The um, What is it? Another one down in Michigan City.
0: Oh, you're which, talking about the, uh, uh, God, what was that, Muskegon? Muskegon? Yeah. There's, no, not Muskegon. But I mean, there's one that's north of Michigan City,
2: the,
1: um, the, the, the uh, Wheeler. Wheeler, yeah. Oh, Frank W. Wheeler. Yeah, I was, yeah,
2: I've
0: never dove You're on
1: that gonna,
2: one. It, well, you can't now. That's one of Gene Turner's finds. And, you know, I, I've got numbers on it, but uh, that's supposed to be uh, 30 feet of water, which is now less than 10 feet of water.
1: Yeah, it's sand all over that.
2: Yeah, there's just been so much sand, which has been pushed around. And, you know, we, we, we saw this shore erosion happening. And, you know, with that shore erosion, all that sand gets pulled gets pulled off, you know, the dry land and put in the bottomlands. And stuff gets buried down there. You know, the uh, city of Green Bay, which is a real popular snorkel shipwreck in our area. That one is completely entombed right now in sand. Although I was out there this spring poking around, and it's getting a little bit deeper. Um, used to be when the wreck was exposed, the uh, you no, know, it started off in about three feet of water and went out to about eight ten feet of water, but then it got Buried in the sand bluff, you can see a tremendous amount of riprap on the shore where the residents had to try to, to save their homes. But all of that sand ended up filling in that 3 to 9 feet area to being all 2 feet deep. And it was out there the spring, and where the city of Green Bay lies, is still about 2 feet deep, but nearby you've got a lot of 6-foot deep water, so I have hopes that that sand will get blown out of there in the, You know, within a year or so.
0: We'll see. Time will tell. And then uh, we have another story. A hundred years ago, in a blind flog, U.S. Coast Guard, I said flog, U.S. Coast Guard ship was sailing around the coast of Southern California when it crashed into a passenger steamship. The USCGC McCulloch sank within 35 minutes and lingered on the ocean floor undisturbed by people for a century. On the 100th anniversary of the vessel, June 13, 1917, Disappearance at Coast Guard announced Tuesday that it found the shipwreck not far from when it went down. The officials planned to leave it there. Strong currents and an abundance of sediment would make moving the delicate shipwreck too difficult. Officials said to the, the detailing discovery in the San Francisco based USCGC McCullough. They also paid tribute to its crews, including two members who died in line of duty but not in the crash. Coast Guard Rear Admiral Todd, uh, let's see this, if I can, how bad I can mess it up. Suckle Zook called the ship a symbol of hard work and sacrifice of previous generations to serve and protect our nation, an important piece of history. The ship sank after hearing a foghorn nearby and then colliding with the SS Governor, a civilian steamship. The McCullough's crew was safely rescued and taken aboard the steamship. The National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration to Coast Guard discovered the wreck last fall during a routine survey. Researchers focus on the area of the shipwreck three miles or five kilometers off point conception california after noticing a flurry of fish sunken ships offer a great place for fish to hide the site is about 150 miles 240 kilometers northwest of los angeles commissioned the late 1800s mccullough first set out to sea during the spanish-american war as part of the commodore george dewey's squadron in the battle of manila bay Cutters based in San Francisco in the late 1800s and early 1900s represented American interests throughout the Pacific. They also played important roles in the development of the western U.S. After the war, the cutter patrolled the west coast and later was dispatched to, perfect, to protect fur seals in the islands off the coast of Alaska where it was also serving as a floating courtroom in remote areas. The archaeological remains, including a 15-inch torpedo tube modified into the bow stern and the top of a bronze 11-foot propeller blade are draped within anemones An 300 feet 90 meters below the surface officials say a six pound gun is still mounted in a platform at the starfish bow where are the photos
2: i don't know it sounds like a cool dive to me with all the
0: <laughs> yeah all
2: the weaponry down there
0: yeah so. 300 feet yeah there's that's what the, would you yeah. like a picture
2: they're
1: talking about
2: it being a, a skeleton drape with 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 uh, anemones uh I'm not qualified for that dip, but if I was, that, although it sounds like it's, it's a long ways offshore, but yeah, haul out, out but yeah the, the, that'd be a cool historical wreck, and it's it's not a war grave. Like, no one died on it. It wasn't during
0: wartime, so.
1: They uh, sent you a link to the picture of it, both underwater and on the surface. Okay.
0: Let me see. Uh, it's a cool dive. Is that the NOAA link?
1: That is correct.
0: Okay. Oh, just that this one particular didn't. Oh, wow, that would be a
1: good interesting ride. boat, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. and the uh, the the bottom shot there is not bad either. Oh, always feel bad for the people in Radio Land here who can't see what we're looking at at the same time. Oh, yeah,
0: this is this is great radio talk about. Phones. Well, what's what's the what's the link you
2: have there? Uh, maybe you can describe the link a little bit in the uh, to our listeners. Well, you could you paste a link in the sh- in the chat room there. I see now.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the bonus in the chat room, you get to see it.
2: Uh. Yeah, this is the ABC News technology wire story: sunken military ship brought to surface. Yeah, I was curious early in the article. They talked. They mentioned we have no plans to bring the to, to bring the ship up. That uh, seems to be be talk amongst the non divers is why don't you bring it up? Why don't you bring it up? Like it's just not. Practical to bring up something like this, you know? I mean, uh, um, well, the technology is there. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, and then the thing is you, like you say, restoration I know, I know. Or, or maintenance is ridiculous. You couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, even if you can get it, well, No, Terrace
0: like, you
2: know, terrorists, uh, Lysenko has talked about bringing up that, uh, submarine over there down there in Southern Michigan. Um, no, but that, that's a, you know, well into the seven figure. Well, he's talking about it being a seven figure project. I wouldn't be surprised if it's an eight, nine figure project to I bring mean, that baby up. I mean, it's just, a you know, takes an awful lot of manpower and equipment and, to, you know, cash to bring yeah. up one of these things. And then, yeah, when, when it comes up, you gotta conserve it. Um, you know, this thing from salt water is going to have a tremendous amount of corrosion and things on it. The the weight of the of the barnacles and the enemies intim- on it and all is going to be astounding. Um, I just kind of get a chuckle. We see that that question asked a lot of times about shipwrecks is why don't you bring it up? Like, yeah, sure, you go <laughs> <laughs> so go for it.
0: No, <laughs> yeah, you know, like so, like in the movie Raise yeah. the Titanic.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Clive Kessler, you know, he's a pretty independent fellow there. Uh, and and that ship and in the movie which we I, and, and, and and the book, uh, you know they they said it was a completely intact boat in the book in the movie and bring up and they brought that up with balloons, uh, you know that you know that's possible to have a completely intact boat, but when you're talking things you know broken up in multiple pieces and structural damage and you know millions of tons sea life attached to it uh, you know, totally complicates the process
0: yeah and, and you can look like and, the, and, the, and
2: even in the even in the book, "Raise the Titanic that project was like an entire world co- cooperation going on to bring up that to bring up that boat so, um, and we can't get the world to agree on anything these days well, if we can't get, get them to agree on, you know, get their ISIS. you know, so um, let alone bringing up a a big boat like this.
0: Yeah. I look at these photos and you see the metal on this wreck and you've got to believe that that's all very thin. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, you, you'd, have to, you'd almost have to have something underneath it, bring it up all in a piece and, you know, or, or you encase it in foam or, or something. Uh, it would just be a, a huge well, you project.
2: Gotta you got to look at it that, you know, apparently it was not structurally sound enough when it sank to, uh, Maintain buoyancy. What's it going to be like after all this time now, with a uh, you know probably several times its own weight attached in sea life? Uh, you know, and then you know a lot of people look at these shipwrecks as being being reefs and having an actual a, a very beneficial effect to marine life. Um, would We want to you know damage the ecosystem like that? Why would we? Uh, there really just isn't. You know, a good reason to bring to bring these up, even if the the money and the, and the and the you know the resources were there to do it. So, these ships are best best left where they lie. You know, yeah. um,
0: if you want one on the surface, just uh, make make a new version from plans. Many many of these shipwrecks, the the, well, you know, the designs for them are are well known, and could, they could be built if somebody was so motivated, and it'd probably cost you about a quarter the, the price of raising one, not including the restoration.
2: Didn't, uh, didn't someone uh, build a smaller scale version of the Titanic not that long ago? I know right around the 100-year mark of the sinking, there was talk about an oriental firm um, building a smaller version of the Titanic. So, I wonder what came of that. One of those hot topics back when you know, talking about the 100th anniversary
0: in 2012. Yeah, you're right. It was about 2000. uh, Here's an article from February 26, 2013. Australian billionaire Clive Palmer says he's building a replicata, replicata, uh, replica of the uh, Titanic uh, designed for a full scale recreation displaying the blueprint of Titanic 2 at a press conference at an intrepid sea and air and space museum. Palmer announced a ship will be built in China and be carrying passengers in the third quarter of 2016. Palmer refused to divulge a cost of building the ship, said the Titanic was a ship of dreams. The Titanic 2 will be a ship where dreams come true. The Australian businessman who owns Australian mining company and other businesses says he received overwhelming response from prospective passengers who want to travel the Titanic 2. He predicted to be a real financial bonanza so successful that he will have to build a Titanic 3.
2: Yeah. Titanic 3. Wow.
0: I don't think he built the first one. uh, All I find is this article.
1: What was the guy's name?
0: Uh, His name, let me get back up to the top, was uh, uh, Clive Palmer.
1: Okay, He's not the only one. There's another gentleman, South African businessman, Saul Goss, G-A-U-S. And uh, he was also going to build one called the Titanic 2. He abandoned his project in 2006. His estimated cost was over five hundred million.
2: Yeah, I suspect that you know these, these kind of projects are appealing and they sound really cool. And you start looking at, at the dollar figures, yeah. and you know five hundred million—that's not a drop in the bucket in the bucket to anyone.
0: Yeah, and the and the thing with it is that uh, you have to do it because you love it, not because you want to. You think it's really going to make money? Because anybody who's going to invest money in something like this. Would rather do it in a real cruise ship. Yeah, because those are optimized well, to make money.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I'm looking at one now. It's called the Seven Star Project under construction as of 2017. Huh. Uh, this one is, uh, it says, the first Titanic replica to actually commence construction was invested in by the Chinese firm Seven Star Energy and is being constructed by the Wenchang Shipbuilding. Uh, they reported it in 2013. formally launched in 2014, ship will be the same size as the original Titanic.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a little bit leery of these Chinese shipbuilding firms, though. I mean, and you know, there's been so many, not necessarily Chinese, but there've been so many sketchy deals that have come out of the Orient when it comes to shipping. Uh, I don't know. You know, uh, been different. Uh, Oh, you know, cruise companies that kind of come and gone. I know, like the uh, SS American Star was supposedly going to get refurbished by, I believe, a Korean outfit. And, you know, that ended up being one of the most uh, eye catching shipwrecks <laughs> as right. a result of their poor going job. Uh, I don't know, they've had quite, quite a few. You no, know, what, what, what about that? that whole two weeks ago we talked about the illegal. Wargraves uh salvagers being caught and that was an oriental outfit so they was scrapping those boats you know um it seems that there's kind of a, a different standard in the east when it comes to uh the uh, the whole shipping industry yeah. so i'm a little bit illiterate of these stories
0: yeah so well, here, here's um, a here's a follow I'm, I'm sure I'm, i've got a follow-up here and this one is from december 2nd 2016 And it says construction of the first full-size replica of the Titanic has begun in China. This, according to state media, reported on Thursday, uh, and expected to enjoy smoother sailing as a lakeside tourist draw of its namesake. The 269-meter-long, 28-meter-wide ship will be docked permanently on a reservoir in in a rural area province, according to the news agency. It'll feature an interior reproducing some of the grandeur of the original ballroom, theater, swimming pool, first-class cabins with addition of Wi-Fi. Uh, the Wang Chung Shipbuilding Industry Group Deputy General Manager uh, has confirmed. Uh, and they're basing it on the, the, the Clive Palmer attempt. Clive was actually going to reproduce a sailing vessel uh, that would actually move, but this is just, this is basically a floating hotel.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I didn't, I didn't really realize this, no. or maybe I did, but they said that uh, in the 1997 movie, director James Cameron had a 90% scale replica built for filming purposes. I
1: don't, I don't think that was a the whole unit, but sections I think were
0: built. Yeah. Yeah. The company first announced plans for the project in 2014, uh, 1 billion won, which is about 202 million uh, Australian.
2: Well, there's certainly a lot of money in that in that part of the world yeah. to finance these kind of projects.
0: Yeah, what they're doing this is they're doing it purely for domestic tourism, uh, trying to keep the citizens at home happy, seeing things. And they well, you know cards.
2: that <clears throat> it doesn't make sense. You know, we do see an awful lot of uh, tourists coming here from that part of the world. You know, keep them home and keep that dollar home. Sure that's a lot. That's a lot of coin.
0: Yeah. But well, and also you, you I don't know I think you they, they get, want to. You get to a different market because most of the the Chinese are coming here for tourism are, are pretty well off. Uh, you yeah, they, they got more money than I do. But uh, the majority of your local Chinese citizens don't have that. So they're looking for kind of like how we were in the, you know, the early 1900s, uh, you know, day trips from their cities.
2: Mm-hmm. This is our uh, equivalent of, a, of a, an amusement park for the, for the blue-collar folks. Yeah. So I can see that.
0: Let's see. Uh, and I think we've got an article on the SS Mendai. World War I shipwreck bell recovered in Swanage. The bell, of the ship involved in one of Britain's worst offshore disasters has apparently been found in a plastic bag left anonymously for a BBC reporter. It bears the name of the SS Mendai, which sank off the island to right during World War I, killing more than 600 black South African laborers. The bell is thought to have been stripped from the wreck by divers. Maritime archaeologist John Gribble, who surveyed the ship, said the bell was probably genuine. BBC reporter Steve Humphrey said the anonymous donor phoned him on Wednesday after seeing recent coverage of the Mendai, must be centenary. The, Mr Humphrey arranged to arrive in Swanage Pier in the early hours to find the bell in a plastic bag. A note in the bag read, "If I handed it in myself, I might it might not go to the rightful place." This needs to be sorted out before I pass away, as it could get lost. I wonder why he thought that he couldn't do it. I was wondering if maybe he thought he might not go to the right place. The bell's never been... Well, maybe
2: he's thinking that, you know, I think he's thinking that if it goes to the the uh, the writer, then it should get enough attention that it should go to the right place, as opposed to possibly some corrupt deal that ended up in some, again in someone's collection. Ah. That's my guess.
0: My thoughts. Uh, I, I, I go for that. Uh, the bell's never been reported found, but given the extent to which the site was stripped of non-ferrous metals in the past, I'd be very surprised if the bell was still on the wreck. The bell looks right. It's the right sort of size for a bell of that period. The SS Mendai sank on 21st February 1917, 1917 when accidentally rammed in thick fog the Royal Mail packet ship SS Dario. A government inquiry said the Dario failed to lower lifeboats, leaving 646 sailors to drown. Most of the dead were family members of South African native labor corps heading to France to do manual labor on the western front. Wow. That
2: is rough. You ram the boat and you don't even rescue the people in the water.
1: 646 sailors?
2: I mean, that sounds like a major violation of maritime law. I mean, I know when a vessel is stricken, anyone able is required to Lend lend assistance. It's, it's not it's not optional, And the fact that they chose. Now this is wartime, so there's probably different laws in effect during wartime. Or I know the passenger vessel has loopholes in that as well because the captain has to look out for his passengers first. But wow, six hundred and forty
0: six left in the water with lower lifeboats.
1: Yeah, so, those were not all sailors. Those were laborers, weren't they?
0: Yes. More than 800 members of the South African Native Labor Corps were on board. So, uh, more than 800 and 646 perished. So well over 70%. Yeah, it seems like you could it have looks done like something. This is, it, which, yeah, which, yeah, it's rough. Well, I look at the bell. Well,
2: it sounds it, like this is a pretty, pretty, pretty racially charged issue too. If you look at the article, a little more thorough between Mandela and the Queen of England there. So wow
0: yeah if you look at the bell it's it's got the name etched in the bell so I don't know why anybody would doubt that that was the bell. I don't think there was much of a mm-hmm. of a desire to, to fabricate a fake bell um,
1: interesting so,
2: I you know I'm wondering it is the uh, donator's remark about not going to the right place uh, I wonder if this is an an episode in history which has uh, people tried to bury and forget about. Oh. It sounds like the, in South Africa where there, there were um, commemorations of this shipwreck which the uh, government tried to discourage. And yeah, I, I'm going to say this is a wreck which uh, those in power have tried to uh, make forgotten.
0: Yeah. Well, if you that look at it.
2: That would be you... why. The, the don't, Yeah.
0: Yeah, because it says the Darius captain who was blamed for the tragedy by the Board of Trade was handed a one-year suspension of his master's certificate. The story became a symbol of racial injustice in South Africa, where successive white-led governments discouraged annual Mendi Day celebrations. So they were having annual celebrations since that tragedy in 1917, and... People did not forget. In 1995, the Queen and Nelsus Mandela unveiled a memorial to the Mendai victims in Soweto uh, down there in South Africa. The government receiver of the wreck said the bell would probably be given to a museum while a decision was made about its future. South African government, which is attempting to recover Mendai artifacts, has been approached for comment. Uh, the timeline is at uh, February seventeenth, 1917. Sinks after... The Royal Mail Packet Boat S.S. Dario plows into her at full speed in thick fog. In 1974, divers identify the wreck 11 nautical miles south of St. Catherine's Point, Isle of Wright. 1995, Nelson Mandela and Queen Elizabeth unveil the memorial in Soweto. 2003, the Mandai <clears throat> Medals introduced as South Africa's highest honor for bravery. 2007 to 2008, two surveys carried out by the English Heritage – 2009, Minister of Defense designates a wreck as a protected war grave, making it an offense to remove items. Of course, as I said before, if you it's go been and, salvaged.
1: Yeah, there's a magazine called The New African. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the 100 year anniversary issue, which is here, it's mm-hmm. March 21st, 2017, I put the link in the site there. It gives you a little different perspective from the South African viewpoint.
0: So. I mean, not not to incite racial tensions, but from this whole thing, it almost appears that these laborers were just a resource that was being taken from South Africa just to uh, fill a need that they had for for work.
2: Yeah, and I'm sure they've drawn all kinds of parallels to labor being taken from there, you know, historically as well. That's yeah, but this, this is really a, a very dark story. This is, uh, wow.
1: Yeah, the article, like I said, the link I is quite interesting and has a different vent to it than you might get from other papers.
2: Yeah. I mean, put this in perspective. You know, you're talking those kind of casualties. You're looking at r- roughly half of Titanic right there, and this is a completely... In our part of the world, an unheard of story. And I'm sure it's quite well-known in South Africa, but it's nothing we've ever heard of. I've never heard of the story before, sad to say. I'm going to have to read about it more now.
0: And then we do have some potentially cool scuba product. I had an email from the CEO or president of this company. They had done a Kickstarter, and the product is called uh P-A-R-A-L-E-N-Z. And if you go to their website, www.paralens.com forward slash USA forward slash, it will get you to the English language version of the site. Uh, And I'd love to try one out. I mean, it's, uh, he he sent something because I thought it would be interesting and I looked at it and I, and it's got some interesting parts to it. Uh, They compare themselves directly to GoPro and they do side by sides. Uh, One thing that this, this camera is doing it looks like a little bit like a small flashlight uh if you remember that that dive camera that bob sweeney had it's similar to that one in appearance uh, and they say it's built for divers by divers but I, I think most products at least most well-designed uh underwater products tend to be uh have some sort of dive pedigree to them
2: um, well diving does doesn't hurt a lot of engineers. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what Bob does, and oh yeah, we know we know quite a quite a few of them who do. So,
0: yeah, yeah en- en- engineers, computer guys. Uh, I think it just it, it's a nice meld of everything, and you just can't beat diving. Uh, but the specs are: it's waterproof to 200 meters or 656 feet. Uh, video resolution is four at 4K is 30 frames per second. Uh, 1080P you get 100 frames per second. Wow. 720P you get 240 frames per second. Uh, capable of taking 8 megapixel still right. image. Uh what I thought was interesting is that they're doing something and I I don't I don't okay. know if it really works well uh for somebody if we would prefer just having the raw video, but they are color correcting based on depth and they say it can be turned on or off. So what it's doing is it's it, they must have some sort of table and it's probably got a bias to crystal clear uh <laughs> water in the Caribbean. But as it goes down, it, it automatically compensates for the, uh, the color spectrum being filtered out of the water. Uh, they're saying you're going to get about two hours of recording time. Uh, it has an app. Uh, lens distortion is about 140 degrees, with lens distortion being corrected, about 5.6 ounces.
1: Looks interesting. The price for the camera is $600. The third-person viewer identified on one of the scopes is 79 bucks lens kits 39 and the accessory kit, which looks to be mounting is 19.
0: Yeah. Uh, That third person kit. For a camera,
2: which is capable of going for a camera capable of going 700 feet. um, That's a deal. That is a steal right
1: there. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm, if I'm going 700 feet, I'm going to get one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But but,
2: you know, in, in the, in the past, when you're looking at going to those kind of depths, you're looking at, you know, buying, buying a gates or something there, you know, and then you're, you know, you're well into four figures and something here that's, you know, comfortably in three figures. Uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, if you looked at the, the website, either you get to, to uh, look at it and they say that they have the one section that says no more color filters and then they have the slider where you can slide back and forth between the, the color corrected before and after.
2: Yeah, but you no, know, I don't know. Color filters. I I, I kind of like the the opinion of some of the of you know some of the expert photographers. We you know we talk a ton of time, but it seems the movement's kind of getting away from using filters yeah. because uh, well, what what you can do with post processing in your software, you know, beats the heck out of any any filter you're going to find.
0: Yeah, well, Plus, and well, I think that's what they're doing here. I don't think they're putting a filter on it. I think that they're using. Uh, software uh, built in the device to do this correction or it's if it's not directly in the device it's in whatever their tool is to uh, pull the images off which i could see if you don't well, have I photoshop that, and uh, this could be attractive well but the, the fact that you can turn it on turn it off um,
2: tells me that they're you know they're trying to just appeal to a broader base because there are a lot of folks out there who frankly just don't want to learn how to use the software who to, who do want to use the filters just because it's, you know, easier to do. The problem with that is, uh, as is that we've seen from, you know, experience taking pictures down there is that your number one hurdle is getting enough light into the lens. And when you put a filter in, well, right there, you're subtracting some light. Maybe it's some light you don't want. Maybe it is. But the fact is that now the light is gone and nothing you can do about it, whereas you start anything you do with a filter... You can do it in your post processing, and you can, and, and then you have a choice. Right. So,
1: uh, I did find one other interesting factor about mm-hmm. it. It's uh, this is one you can like to say, keep your gloves on. The buttons on the camera are magnetic with vibration feedback, and they were designed that way so you can use them with neoprene gloves. That's Ooh. good. Now that that's a very nice feature because with the GoPro with my gloves on, I can't always turn the camera on because of the compression of the buttons and the compression yes. of my fingers. This would be very nice. And the vibration would give you positive feedback.
0: Yeah. I, I like the third person uh, feature where it will What it almost looks like a little ROV. So it's tethered to you and then has enough flotation that as you're moving, it stays behind you and gets you in the shot. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to try one out. i a little bit above my price range at this point with everything else on my my wish list, but, uh, cool nonetheless. Uh, and it's got a, yeah, very it's, cool. it's doing a dive log of your dives, keeping track of, uh, depth and, and, uh, temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can be overlaid on your video. So if you're doing something that comes with a, uh, ability to mount right to your mask.
2: Yeah. If it's, if it's that small, I can see you doing that. You know, uh, it's- from, speaking from experience, it's kind of a challenge to, to shoot quality video yeah. with something attached to your mask, but still, it's uh, at least what you see, they see.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, and I did click, and I think you might be able to do it. If you go click on news on this website, you can see where um, they've started shipping. It was originally a Kickstarter project, and uh, the owner of the company had emailed me saying that they're now available in the U.S., that they've uh, met their their Kickstarter obligation, Uh, the one thing that hasn't happened Mm -hmm. is it hasn't made it through the, uh, I think it's the FCC certification yet. So they haven't started assembling the uh, uh, USS, the the USS, the U.S. uh, version yet. And, and it was supposed to be it says waiting on FCC approval. We need FCC approval before we can ship the cameras. And this was four days ago. Is a test ensure no harmful frequencies are emitted from the camera. We submitted the cameras for testing to institute a long time ago, and was told the certificate certificate would be ready before June. They then moved the deadline to the 9th of June and now again the 16th of June. The delay is not a problem with the camera. The testing company is a huge corporation, and despite sending them a lot of emails and calling them, we cannot get them to do it faster. They are busy, and being a small client leaves us with very little leverage. We just go ahead and start the final assembly, but the test calls for any change in the camera. We'd have to uh, bin the production. We must have approval before we can move on. Sorry to keep you waiting. I will update as soon as I get word word about the tests. And this is Michael Trost. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. Well, you know, I can tell you that uh, once these things hit the hit the market and are you know available to those outside the Kickstarter program, these are gonna these are gonna sell. Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen the talk about these things, and I thought one of those pipe dreams just wasn't gonna happen for that kind of money. But you know, to, to get a, you know, they said a hundred it's a hundred forty degree uh, wide angle on it, so it's everything a GoPro is. Plus, you know, a, a few more options, a little more user friendly, even perhaps, and has uh, three three times the depth capability. So, or more. Uh, I'm not sure if his GoPro is rated for 140 or, or 200. I'm not sure, but um, this is this is awesome. I, I, I'm I'm going to have one within six months. I can tell you that.
0: So. <laughs> well, it's good he said it.
1: Does that have Wi-Fi capability like the GoPro?
0: Um, I didn't see that in the specs, but I can ask him. He said, if we had any questions, we'd give him a call so we can ask him. I can find out if it's got wifi.
1: Well, I mean, that, that can sounds, be a nice feature. you yeah, a techie.
0: Well, it sounds like you're on good terms with this
2: guy here. Maybe we could, uh, get a test unit in here to <laughs> wait for for the show. Well, yeah. I was, I, I was looking yeah. at
0: it and I'm thinking, how come we weren't on the short list? Cause they, they have all these 250 divers who've been, uh, testing it already. And I was thinking, hey, what about us? But mm-hmm. oh well, well, we'll give them enough. Grace. Well, I,
2: I wonder, I wonder how many of them are you know qualified to, to go to that kind of depth, though. I mean, uh, there's not, there's very few folks who who will go to uh, you know, seven hundred feet. Very few. Uh, but you know, just the fact that this is something which you can take bull sport depth and you're not at all concerned about flooding. Uh, it's a real boon. So yeah, yeah but, but put me mm-hmm. down for one.
1: I can find an 800-foot line, and I can total lower it over the boat until it gets down that deep.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got it. You going to depth test it, huh? Yeah. So here they had, uh, in the beginning of June, they said the web shop is now officially open. First come, first serve, 1,250 units in the June production, and not many left.
2: Yeah, because they're going to sell fast. These things will sell fast for that kind of money, that kind of depth, for all the features of a GoPro, and then some. Maybe not Wi-Fi, but uh, yeah. If, if I wasn't buying some big toys right now, I'd, I'd, it'd be on my short list. Rather right now, it's on the long list. So,
0: Well, cool. Well, so right, what right, was, at, right,
2: right after, right after, right after the, I buy a side scan. Yeah. So. <laughs> Another side scan. So,
0: yeah. well, I just visited their Facebook page, and it looks like they get quite a bit of traffic there. So, mm-hmm. Speaking of that, the the, and we've we've by the way finished Scoob in the news, but the Scoob obsessed we have we have surpassed 500 likes on our Facebook page. So so thank you everybody for doing that. Uh, again, we don't do a whole lot on Facebook, but we do post some. We had a, a couple posts this week that through sharing and social media got over 3,000 views. So uh, appreciate that activity. Uh, and maybe let me let me take a look at one of those articles. That might have been uh, something we should have covered here. Sometimes forget to go back on that. That was, that was a few days. That was days ago. That's old old news.
1: I have been off of Facebook so much in the last three or four months. It's like, you know, there is life without Facebook.
0: Oh yeah. Well, and I, I'm all, I'm barely on there. It's uh, I, I get in trouble with Facebook because they they start give especially if you're a got any sort of business or groups on there. If you're not responding within a couple minutes, they try to shame you into uh, uh, spending more time on Facebook. Yeah, we have 501 likes as of the recording of this podcast. So we are, we, we are in our eighth season. Uh, we're in the process of moving over uh, the podcast from one audio host to another. Uh, I've been working on, I, I did initial tests uh, several months ago. And finally, I uh, wrote the check today and started doing the move in mass. So it takes a little bit of time to do 330 episodes. So within the next week, we should have all those copied over. So keep an eye out for that. Awesome. Let's see. Uh, anybody get any diving in this last week?
1: As I said earlier, this has been a dry week for me, but I'm sure Kevin must have got wet.
2: Got got a few in. Um, I know, uh, a friend a friend of mine and her son just recently were certified, and I told them I'd get them on a wreck as soon as they were. And we had plans for the for the Rockaway out of South Haven. Unfortunately, Mother Nature had other plans for us. Um, I figured I don't know, brand new wreck divers taking them out in five footers. Nah, not a good not a good way to break them in. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> We opted for the uh, Diamond Lake Wreck, also known as the South Bend. It was a you know, a uh, ferry that used to run back and forth between the island out there on Diamond Lake, a uh, 60-footer. And we were treated to some magnificent visibility down there. Um, now, I've got probably, I don't know, six straight dives on this wreck and I've never had better than five-foot biz down there. Well, Mac and I had one. At, we, we, we did a night dive. I think we had about 10-foot biz that night, maybe better than that. Hard, hard to tell in the dark. But we had a solid 20-foot biz on the south bend down there. And it's only in 38 feet of water. Um, it was awesome. I mean, you come up on a section and you see the entire section there in front of you. You know, It really put a lot of into perspective, all the work that uh, Zoltan and others did putting this, you know, kind of reconstructing this wreck. Um, really cool. Really cool. I know Tyler, when he got up to, uh, the communications booth, he claimed he saw some huge pike on it. Uh, he, he saw some huge fish, but they, they kind of moved off before he could, was able to identify him. This was his, uh, his third dive, um, outside open water. <laughs> so this is a brand new diver. Uh, know, Rhonda, you know, spent a fair amount of time checking out the hull sections, uh, I had my camera down there, took lots of pictures. Um, The biggest problem I had with the pictures on this dive was usually you 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 pop a bunch of pictures and maybe one out of five is presentable, but I only had a couple pictures which were not presentable. I mean, this was a really nice dive.
1: And people can see those very nice pictures if they go to the club website.
2: Yeah, I, I shared them at the club website. They're on my Facebook, I have an album. Entitled uh, South Bend, and I also shared them on the uh, the Diamond Lake homeowners website, and from there they got shared all over the place. They got they were shared to Clinger Lakes and different lakes around, and um, I, I lost track of the shares. But, yeah, I think uh,
1: MSRA actually had a share on that one too. Did they really? Yeah, okay. I'm quite sure I noticed that. Hmm.
2: Okay, yeah, I, I know that they they definitely went around. And you know the, the pictures came out well. Oh, and by the way, those pictures are shot with the uh, GoPro Hero Silver using no filter. Uh, there's a fair amount of uh, post-processing editing going on in those. I, I tend to uh, bump up the contrast, knock down the green, and uh, I will adjust the light individually for each individual photo depending on how it looks. But you know, there's there's some editing in, in those photos, but you just can't beat that visibility we, we had down there. You know, we, you can see the you know, the individual sections, the entire section there. It was put it in perspective, too. It was really nice. <clears throat> but we were hoping to have repeated visibility uh, in Reeds Lake on Tuesday. Reeds Lake's up by Grand Rapids and has a, a really cool intact 100-foot steamboat in there. And We've been on a long stretch here in this part of the state without any you know, measurable rainfall. And that really enhances uh, the visibility in the inland waters. And we were hoping for some good viz on the Hazel A in Reed's Lake. But, you know, Reed's Lake had other ideas. We got up there, and the visibility was kind of disappointing. Uh, surprising, though, because on the surface, we could see the, the uh, anchor line going down almost 20 feet. So we were really, really pumped on the surface. You could see that great of vis up there. But once you got down to 20 feet, you kind of dropped into a cloud. And the cloud started kind of opening up a little bit once we got to the wreck. But on the wreck, we never had better than 8-foot vis, and most of it was around 5-foot visibility. Um, I don't know. I was kind of concerned because this, this was, you know, Rhonda is still in single digits for her, her total number of dives. And, uh, this is, uh, like a 45, 50 foot dive, which is well within, no you know, she, she, she's, she's, she's now certified. So she's actually certified for 130, not ready for it, but she's certified for it. But, you know, we, we know from experience that going into poor visibility as a new diver can be a little bit unnerving. And I was a little concerned for her, but she handled it like a trooper. You know, uh, I ended up making a couple, trips up and down the line for you know anger setting purposes and things so i was up you know in the cold a little more than she was and i got pretty i got pretty chilled down there and i ended up calling the guy kind of short thinking that she wasn't really going to enjoy it anyway with all with the poor visibility but she was kind of just kind of bummed she's like why, why why'd you wimp out <laughs> i wanted to see more so uh she you know we got we get uh, to see the stern section pretty well in the boiler section pretty well did not get as far as the bow um all in all, we had about 20 minutes of bottom time down there. You know, it was a really cool dive. It was a pretty cool dive for the poor visibility, what, what it was. Um, just so you, know, you always hope for better. So.
0: Oh, very cool. Making me jealous for uh, everybody getting out there.
2: Well, it sounds like, sounds like the, the club did a Thirsty Thursday dive tonight. Has anyone heard of it? I thought it looked like Ted and John were going out to that.
0: Yeah, They're there's do, a, uh, a post Paul, just Paul. Yeah, a post just got put out. I, uh, For some reason, Facebook is, is being extremely picky on the Mud Club site about approvals. But uh, Ted posted a photo. Paw, Paw Lake, two divers got in, two got out. John got three balls. I got two. Viz was about 15 feet. Temp was warm. Missed everyone. And then John commented, mm, good times. 15-foot
2: Viz is pretty good up there. Yeah. Yeah. 15-foot 15, 15 Viz is pretty good out there, especially with all that rain we just had. So,
0: yeah. Did it rain real heavy? I I mean, we got rain here. It was steady, but we needed it.
2: it was like a torrential, it's like a monsoon here for about 20 minutes. I'm over in Bangor area, and I've heard the stories coming out of South Haven about it being, you know, pretty scary stuff coming ashore over there. Um, People talking about 75-mile-an-hour winds and all kinds of nasty stuff, but it was very short-lived. Lots of trees down in this area. My car didn't go out, well, but a lot of my friends did out here. So it was a really intense short storm with a lot of rain. I want to say we got—I know it collapsed my boat cover, and there were gallons and gallons and gallons in that boat cover. So I'm—I'm um, sure I had 20 gallons of water trapped in that boat cover. I'm sure I did. So I'm
0: a 19 boat,
2: boat. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. I did. I. Yeah. Because I kept hearing, "We're going to get rain. We're going to get rain." We're going to get rain, and it never came. And then finally we had some starting late yesterday. Uh, yeah, And it, it was pretty steady for some time, but uh, I'm, I'm looking at my lawn today. It's still sections of it are, are brown. Uh, we, we probably well, we need – Well,
2: they'll take a bowl.
0: Well. Yeah, we're going to need this about every, you know, once every three or four days for a while uh, to keep things up. We're, we're starting oh. to get into that warm time of the year.
2: Well, we just haven't had any, you I mean, no noticeable rainfall. I mean, there's been a, a little bit of a, a drop here and there, but, you know, nothing we had last night, but that, you know, because so many of our lakes around here have an inflow and an outflow, and when we get, you know, a fair amount of rain, it brings a lot of dirt in the lake, which, you know, hurts our visibility. Um, but, yeah, if you could get out diving in the last week in this area, uh, some pretty good visibility reward.
0: Um, so, you got any plans for this weekend to get any diving in?
2: Well, this is uh, Father's Day weekend, and my son was contacting one wanted to do anything with him on Sunday. I am like, yeah, let's go diving. Think he's <laughs> he's not a diver yet, right? um, but no, we're we're gonna go uh, up to the Nova Dock and go snorkeling on that. That's a pretty cool storm. Of, it's one of the night wreck of storm of nineteen forty wrecks. You can actually see it in Google Earth pretty clearly. It's about six miles south out of Pentwater. We're going to snorkel that one on Sunday. And I'm thinking I might also dive the end minch. Um,
0: I'm not
2: 100% sure about that, but I'm thinking I will. I've not doped the stern section. I've built the bow section twice. So I'm thinking I'm probably going to do a dive on the on the stern of the Ann minch. So that's my plan. How about, how about you, Mac? You got any plans coming up?
1: Um, so i sort of tied around the house for a bit. Okay. But, uh, I'm going to try to get some more of time in in the near future.
0: Okay. I've got a graduation going on this weekend. My daughter, who has successfully graduated from high school, uh, we have her graduation Yay. party uh, going on Saturday. And um, the next weekend I've got something scheduled up already. And I'm to that point where, yeah, I, I think I probably need some advice of how I get back diving. I think this is my longest dry spell since last year. Uh, I'm, I'm not moving in the, in the right direction. I need to, uh, follow my own advice and put some stuff in the calendar, but now it's going to take me a while to get everything back together. Uh, I had talked about my dive vehicle had died. So now I've got a new truck and I don't, I, it's, I've got to figure out how to get everything back together for diving. So, I've got an idea of a whole bunch of projects for you know how to organize my gear in the truck, but yeah, I kind of feel like I'm crawling out of a hole.
2: Well, at least you're doing it in June, and you still got a lot of dive season ahead of you. So, let's get you out there.
0: Yeah, my my plan is to dive all year and round. You know, uh, I'm, I'm kind of worried. Uh, I'm gonna first time I'm gonna get in the water. It's gonna be hundred degrees. Gonna roast like a lobster in a dry <laughs> suit.
2: Well, you look at your wetsuit, don't you?
0: Do <laughs> you see my wetsuit?
2: Well I don't okay. I, I don't use my dry suit when it's like this. You know, I mean actually both both dives I did this week were in my in my wetsuit. Heck when I when I dove the, uh, I made the mistake when I was uh on the South Bend during Diamond Lake, I didn't I didn't wear a hood. And man, ice cream headache, that was not a good idea. It was cold <laughs> down there. But it worked. So um but yeah, I mean just tell me your Dry a suit is optional, depending on what you're doing. Yeah.
0: What were you going to say, Mac? So. Something about my wetsuit? Oh,
1: nothing. I was, No, I'm not going to say anything. I'm, if it's 100 degrees, you don't need a wetsuit. Just get in that Speedo <laughs> that's and go. True. <laughs> this is true. Well, Speedo, I, there's
2: an image. I, didn't, I didn't need that. did, did yeah, not need that image. This, here,
0: so. this, the Speedo's got more coverage than my wetsuit, so that's how bad my <laughs> wetsuit has gotten.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what I, I have, I take a lot of uh, uh, new divers out, you know, I talk to a lot of my buddies about uh, us out diving, you know, and I tell them, hey, you know, it's, come on diving with us, but I'm warning you, yeah, we're, we're we're a bunch of fat guys in wetsuits, and once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You kind of got to think, it's kind of like men in tights, but <laughs> more more tragedy than comedy, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I had that problem, but my my, my wetsuit kind of shrunk over the winter. I had that problem too.
0: So yeah, that, that, well, that's the other part that I, I'm I'm worried about. I've been watching the scales, and I I was doing good all the way till the beginning of uh, yeah I, I yeah, through the holidays I hadn't gained as much as I expected. And then I got the cold or a flu and had lost five pounds more than what I gained. So I felt like I was ahead, and I was doing pretty well all the way until the beginning of this season for uh, graduation and graduation parties and that is sneaky stuff you don't feel like you've eaten a lot but that scale says otherwise so mm. uh, luckily i don't need a whole lot of undergarments under the dry suit so i think i could, i think it will still zip
2: well i i'd say i'd say go wet man i mean I, I know your wetsuit's got a few miles on it there but uh you know it's really nice to have just an easy dive you know yeah i I've been using my breather. You know, I, I did a, I've done a couple hours out to, uh, uh, Lake 16 training on the thing recently, but it is nice once in a while just to put on a wetsuit, put on a, one of my steel 72s, just a traditional BCD and jump in the water. And it's nice to have a easy dive. It only takes, you know, 15 minutes of preparation, you know, 15 minutes of putting away the gear when I get home. Um, I really value those nice, easy, squeezy dives. Mm -hmm. So, wetsuit diving, you know, I've been talking to some people about, you know, I I I got, you know, some, you know, there's a bunch of kids that play, I say kids, there's a bunch of 20-somethings out of Minnesota, for some reason, were picking my brain about diving on Facebook, and they're all wanting to know about dry suits and, you know, double tanks and everything, and I'm just like, no, guys, I I mean, you want to go dive in wetsuit, single tanks, keep it simple, you know i mean have a good time you know i mean you want to go tech that's down the road but to keep it simple yeah
0: we'd like to thank wrvo radio for putting us on the air one more year if you like hunting fishing the great outdoors you'll love wrvo radio you want to find out how to listen go to our website www.scubaobsessed.com go down to the footer in the bottom and we have links to their website and how to listen uh, also, like to thank our Patreon supporters, specifically our dive nitrox, which is currently Vanessa Homiak. Uh, thank you once again for supporting the show, especially as long as you have. You're the you're the first one and the last one currently. Uh, can use some more supporters as we improve the program and you know these things. Uh, all these little costs add up, and certainly appreciate it. Um, let's see. Uh, do you have a, a a wreck of the week?
2: Yes, I do. Um, tonight, I'm going to feature the uh, Samuel Mather. Uh, this is a really cool schooner. Uh, it's a little deep. If you're looking at around uh, what we got for depth on this guy here, it's a lot of sport depth. But when you look at the really intact wreck, you are going to go a little bit deeper than most. Uh, yeah, 140 to 170 feet. And I'm going to pull this information off of MichiganPreserves.org. Michigan also, a little bit off the uh, Wikipedia article here, too. Uh, let me see. I'm a little bit discombobulated as I pull this together here. But yeah, I can say I'm looking at MichiganPreserves.org. Where is the article on the Mather? Oh, they don't actually feature the Mather. Oh, I'm going straight to Wikipedia then. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mather had a series of mishaps and changes in ownerships, and she was launched in Cleveland on April 7th of 1887. First owners: John Moore. Don, okay, let me let me get to the to the wreck on this thing here because I know you guys have been listening to us for a long time tonight. Let me give you the meat and potatoes here. All right, final voyage. On 22nd November 1891, 2 a.m., the wooden mather was downbound from Duluth, Minnesota, from Buffalo, New York with a load of 58,000 bushels of wheat when she was rammed in the starboard side near the aft hatch by the steel packet trader Brazil in a thick, heavy fog in Whitefish Bay, eight miles north of Point Iroquois collision made an 11-foot hole on the starboard side. There was no loss, loss of life from a crew of 20. From the 25 minutes that it took for her to sank, her crew were able to put away, pull away with their lightboats, but they lost all the personal possessions. The crew was picked up by the Brazil, and they were, they were taken later transferred to the steamer Parks Foster for transport to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. The Brazil put, proceeded to Duluth with their load of coal and was found to have, have three frames and a, and a stringer broken from the collision. The Mather was valued at $50,000 with a col- weak cargo, and it was a total loss, estimated in excess of $226,000. Now, like I said, this is a little bit outside of sport depth here, although the mast does reach up to within 90 feet of the surface. Uh, this is a one that has an intact crow's nest, has mast still standing. Um, if you look it up online, there are a lot of cool pictures by Bob Underhill. If you Google Samuel Mather, you'll come up with quite a bit of information on it here. Um, and this is a wooden schooner with masts still standing, just barely within sport depth. Like I say I don't think you're going to reach the deck when, in sport depth and all that, but you're going to still be able to, um, you know, see the wreck within sport depth here in the Great Lakes. And there's nowhere else in the world you're going to see these kind of wrecks in sport depth. So, apologize for being a little bit, uh, slipshod in my presentation there, but that is the Samuel Mather, sunk in 1887. There you have it. Well, built
1: in eighteen eighty-seven. <laughs> there we go. Excellent. Nice job,
0: uh, Mac. Do you have uh, anything you want to cover?
1: I always like to go around looking at the safety aspects. What you find on scuba board and other places. There's a site it was called uh, thoughts.com. and one of the comments it was was is scuba diving safe? And it uh, it's a rather large article, but it came down to three items I looked at. So the top three root causes leading to diver fatalities, and they were using Dan Fatality Workshop report numbers, are, and again, nothing we don't already know, but sometimes we ignore. Number one was pre-existing disease or pathology in the diver, poor buoyancy control, and you see that everywhere. Uh, number three is rapid ascent or violent water movement. And the comments here were, all three are completely avoidable, and in fact... If a diver respects the safe diving practices taught during scuba diving training, none of the factors should be a problem. And I say, for example, for beginning diver training, prospective scuba divers are given a scuba diving medical questionnaire, which, if answered truthfully, should bring up any medical problems or concerns that could predispose a diver to injury, death, lung disease, or heart issues. It says, of course, some divers do lie on these medical release forms and ignore the warnings not to dive with contradicted type conditions. Furthermore, a diver may develop a medical condition that is contrary to diving after certifications. So it says people really need to review the medical questionnaire periodically, take it seriously, even after you become a certified diver. The second aspect they talked about was poor buoyancy control, still an issue with many divers, and it talked about who is to blame for this lack of control? Is it the diver or is it the instructors who certified them saying they were competent? And that doesn't give the experience level of, of the issues that people have, so we can maybe correlate that. So, that in either case, they have certified divers no longer or never did, <clears throat> excuse me, understand how buoyancy compensator really works or how pressure changes on descent and ascent attack or affect buoyancy. So the subject is unclear. If a diver simply hasn't developed the physical ability to control his uh, buoyancy properly, he really needs to practice, and a scuba diving refresh course be, before attempting diving. If you've been laid off from diving, is recommended. And the last part they talked about is rapid ascents, are frequently due to poor buoyancy controls. In many cases, said the diver simply panics, rockets to the surface, and of course that's totally unacceptable. If Water in a diver's mask makes him panic. It should be practice flooding and clearing his mask in a pool till it's routine. If a buddy constantly strays so far away he's impossible to alert in an out-of-air emergency, you should be either getting a new buddy, which is not a bad idea, but making sure that you check your tank, you pr- you check your pressure gauges, and you make sure they're working. And a large majority of the times, a lot of people diving in depth where you can't make a an emergency safe ascent, Never a bad idea to carry a reserve tank of air. It also says if the water is rough enough, that water movement is going to be an issue. Don't dive or in the dive the moment the difficulty or current surge or chop is experienced. And the last part says, Dan Report goes on to explain that some of the leading contributing factors to diver fatalities still remain buddy separation and inadequate training for the dive being attempted. And again, both of these are violations of standard diving guidelines, and often common sense. ta That's my two cents for the week. Very good Excellent. advice.
0: Well, I think we are getting to that time of the show. Before we head on, do you have anything you would like to plug? How about you, Mac? Did we lose Mac?
2: I'm not hearing from him there. Maybe we did.
1: Hello. Did I lose you?
0: No. We Hopefully hear you there he is. Yeah, I wondered if you had anything about that. you wanted to plug uh, before we... Um,
1: not exactly plug, but I was going to say uh, the Michigan Underwater Divers do have two of their relatively new members who are going out to become commercial divers in Seattle, I believe. And uh, I say to them, congratulations on making that kind of decision. Good luck in your endeavors and stay safe when you're out there completing your commercial diving school.
2: That was uh, Jeremy and Skyler, wasn't it? Absolutely. Oh, congratulations. congratulations, guys. Good luck with that. And stay, stay Yeah, Hang,
0: hang, hang in there. <laughs> well, how about you, Kevin? Do you have anything you want to plug?
2: Yeah, a couple things here. For one, you know, of course, I want to encourage our listeners to support your local dive shop. We always enjoy those, those uh, online deals. those uh, Online deals aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, support your local libraries. There's a wealth of information in there, and you're not going to find everything you want on the internet. Additionally, um you know i 'd like to mention to our listeners uh you know it 's no secret that uh we don't have as many people coming into diving as who are getting out of it there, and i've heard a common thread from many uh presenters that are underwater this year at uh, uh ghost ships different uh you know the spring shows is how you know we 're just not getting in the people who are who are going out, so I'd like to really challenge our listeners to take somebody new diving. Uh, you know, Try to stoke that interest, whether they, they like it because of the historical aspect, they like it because of the camaraderie, they like it because of the, the ecology aspect, they like it because of the wildlife, the fish. There are just a whole slew of different angles. Take your pick. Okay, I want to encourage our listeners to get somebody new into diving this year. Um, we had him on the show a few months ago. Terrence Lysenko was really adamant at his presentation at ghost ships' about bring somebody new next year to ghost ships I'm gonna say everybody here bring somebody bring a, bring a non diver with you to the shows okay if that doesn't hook them I don't know what will but let's get some new blood into this here because we all you know people are stepping out and we're not getting as many people stepping in so let's keep it rolling guys
0: I'm thinking we're just that we need to be, have everybody needs to build a dive buddy. And I don't mean literally build one, but I mean go out, find somebody who you think would like diving and, and, and get them involved. Uh, you know, with everything being online. You gotta keep. I was gonna say with everything being online, I think there's a great opportunity for people to actually get out there and live life and, and, and see that no matter how great that VR, AR mixed reality system is, it doesn't come close to approaching the experience you get with actually going scuba diving.
2: Yeah. I, I don't think they're ever going to get an app for that. You know, they got some apps that make it a little bit easier and things, you know, there's all kinds of things for gas blending and dive tables and all that, but there's never going to be an app that's going to replace that feeling you get from laying your hands on the mast of a 19th century shipwreck down there. Okay. You know, you, you read the stories, you see the pictures, but being there, nothing replaces that. I mean, and, and, and we can do that here in the Great Lakes. We can go to these stories. That that Samuel Mather I just mentioned to you, like I say, the, the, uh, the mast is at 90 feet. You know, you could go down there and sport depth and put your hands on that story that I just told you. You know, that ship still exists to this day and will exist for a long time. And that's on Lake Superior, so there are, aren't going to be any, any, any muscles on it yet. Oh. Well, wherever we hope, but gets you know bring somebody new diving out there and and keep them diving. You know, yeah, we, we do get a lot of a new a lot of new recruits. We get a lot of new certification people, but we also see that they come in and then that they kind of come and go. The the key is to get them involved with an active dive club. You know, we have that with the Mud Club here in town. Um, you know, there are active dive clubs all over the country, uh, but I've also heard from people tell me about how their former dive club is now extinct, you know, that there's pretty much no one longer, no longer anyone involved with it there. And some sad stories about a lot of camaraderie that's gone because, um, you know, the dive clubs are just, they're, they're just going away. So bring people in, get involved with the club, keep them diving. So, all right, I'm off my soapbox.
0: Okay. So let's go ahead. I think it's that time of the show. Are you ready? Ever ready. Bring it on. And do it. When, And this one's from Rod, and uh, thank you. Uh, it's a little long, so uh, hang in there. After Quasimodo's death, the Bishop of the Cathedral of Notre Dame sent word to the streets of Paris that a new bell ringer was needed. The Bishop decided that he would conduct the interviews personally and went into the belfry to begin screening process. After observing several applicants demonstrate their Kills, he decided to call a day when a lone, armless man approached him and announced that he was here to apply for the bell ringer's job. The bishop was incredulous. You have no arms! No matter, said the man, observe. He then began striking the bell in his face, producing a beautiful melody in the clarion. The bishop listened in astonishment, convinced that he had finally found a suitable replacement for Quasimodo. Suddenly, rushing forward to strike the bell, the armless man tripped, plunged headlong out of the belfry window to his death in the street below the stunned bishop rushed to his side when he reached the street a crowd gathered around the fallen figure drawn by the beautiful music they had heard only moments before as they silently parted to let the bishop through one of them asked bishop who was this man i don't know his name the bishop said sadly but his face rings a bell
2: oh jeez, that's oh, not yeah. bad that's not know. bad <laughs> 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 but, 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 but
0: but hold on there's more the following day, despite the sadness that weighed heavily on his heart due to the unfortunate death of the armless, uh, gosh, I don't even know what this word is. Campionologist? Must be bell ringer. The bishop continued his interviews for bell ringers of Notre Dame. The first man approached him, said, Your Excellency, I am the brother of the poor armless wretch that fell to his death from this very bell for yesterday. I pray that your honor his life by allowing me to replace him in his duty. The bishop agreed to give the man then Audition, as his armless brother man's brother stopped to pick up the mouth to strike the first bell, he groaned, crutched his chest, died on the spot. Two monks hearing the bishop's cries of grief, the second tragedy rushed up the stairs to his side. What happened? The first breathlessly asked, "Who is this man? I don't know his name, sighed the distraught bishop, but he's a dead ringer for his brother.
2: Uh Uh Uh-huh.
1: Ouch. Uh-huh. Ouch. (laughs) Uh-huh.
2: Okay. Thank you, Rodney.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and on that literal note, go out there and get wet
1: and stay safe
0: and have a good time doing it. Recording has been completed. All right.